When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When he was asked if the news of the day surprised him anymore, the poet Joseph Brodsky, who grew up in Soviet Russia and came to America in his early 30s, replied, It certainly doesn't surprise me. I think the world is capable of only one thing, basically, proliferating its evils. That's what time seems to be for. The only thing that surprises me is the frequency, under the present circumstances, of instances of human decency, of sophistication, if you will. Because basically the situation on the whole is extremely uncongenial for being decent or right. Some version of this sentiment can be found everywhere and at all times. Here it is from a ninth century Buddhist monk, a thousand or so years earlier in the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, and finally from George Orwell. The Buddhist monk says it has gotten to the point where there is nowhere that the ugliness of opportunism does not exist. And Ecclesiastes, I have also noted that all labor and skillful enterprise come from men's envy of each other, another futility and pursuit of wind. And finally, George Orwell, and if it has reached new levels of lunacy in our own age, as I think it has, then the question becomes, what is the special quality in modern life that makes a major human motive out of the impulse to bully others? Now, every now and then, it is worth reminding ourselves that in the world we've set up, it is always easier to be selfish rather than selfless and it is always easier to cling to certainty rather than deal with difficulties that will never be resolved. Every now and then, it is worth reminding ourselves how the worst of the politics and bureaucracy and technology and culture that we've created have all combined to make decency, to ourselves or to others, barely possible, and that, by and large, this has always been the case. This may sound melodramatic, but that is only so because such a realization is so huge and so unlikely to change, and its tentacles so ubiquitous. But for all that, it is no less true or tragic. As Primo Levi said about the Holocaust, where the number of victims is so large and can sometimes destroy our ability to empathize, quote, a single Anne Frank it excites more emotion than the myriads who suffered as she did, but whose image has remained in the shadows. Perhaps it is necessary that it can be so. If we had to and were able to suffer the sufferings of everyone, we could not live." End quote. Yet we must find some way to live with the knowledge of all of this suffering. And one way to do that seems to be in recognizing just how much of it centers on work. I have quoted Studs Terkel's 1974 book, Working, 
many times in this book, and it has always struck me that he begins his series of interviews with Americans talking about their jobs, not with a hymn to the Protestant work ethic or to pride and fulfillment. Instead, this is what you find, page one, paragraph one. This book, writes Studs Terkel, being about work is, by its very nature, about violence, violence to the spirit as well as the body. It is about ulcers and accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is, above all or beneath all, about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us." End quote. But then you say, what's the point of mentioning any of this if history shows how unlikely any of it is to change? My answer, anyway, is that simple awareness does so much, something that I've mentioned many times on this podcast, becoming as aware as we can of our wants and our needs and how interconnected they all are with the suffering and the labor of others, and of understanding just how many people stand behind the fulfillment of even the simplest of our desires. As a United Auto Worker officer told Studs Terkel, every time I see an automobile going down the street, I wonder whether the person driving it realizes the kind of human sacrifice that has to go into the building of that car. Or, as the Jewish, Jewish sage Ben Zoma said nearly 2,000 years ago, this is one of my favorite passages from the Talmud, how much labor Adam must have expended before he obtained bread to eat. He plowed, sowed, reaped, piled up the sheaves, threshed, winnowed, selected the ears, sifted the flour, kneaded and baked, and after that he ate. Whereas I get up in the morning and find all this prepared for me. And how much labor must Adam have expended before he obtained a garment to wear? He sheared, washed the wool, combed, spun, wove, and after that he obtained a garment to wear, whereas I get up in the morning and find all this prepared for me. All artisans attend and come to the door of my house, and I get up and find all these things before me. Or, as the writer, as the journalist Barbara Ehrenreich put it, as recently as 2001 in her book Nickel and Dimed, she says, when someone works for less pay than she can live on, when, for example, she goes hungry so that you can eat more cheaply and conveniently, then she has made a great sacrifice for you. She has made you a gift of some part of her abilities, her health, and her life. The working poor, as they are approvingly termed, are in fact the major philanthropists of our society. They neglect their children so that the children of others will be cared for. They live in substandard housing so that other homes will be shiny and perfect. They endure privation so that inflation will be low and stock prices high. To be a member of the working poor is to be an anonymous donor, a nameless benefactor to everyone else. Or, indeed, there is this long passage again from George Orwell. 
here in the mid-1930s uh, are his words after observing the living conditions of coal miners in the industrial north of England. This is what Orwell says. Watching coal miners at work, you realize momentarily what different universes people inhabit. Down there where coal is dug is a sort of world apart which one can quite easily go through life without ever hearing about. Probably a majority of people would even prefer not to hear about it. Yet it is the absolutely necessary counterpart of our world above. Practically everything we do, from eating an ice to crossing the Atlantic, and from baking a loaf to writing a novel, involves the use of coal, directly or indirectly. For all the arts of peace, coal is needed. If war breaks out, it is needed all the more. In time of revolution, the miner must go on working or the revolution must stop. For revolution, as much as reaction, needs coal. Whatever may be happening on the surface, the hacking and shoveling have got to continue without a pause, or at any rate without pausing, for more than a few weeks at the most. In order that Hitler may march the goose step, that the Pope may denounce Bolshevism, that the cricket crowds may assemble at Lords, that the poets may scratch one another's backs, coal has got to be forthcoming. You could quite easily drive a car right across the north of England and never once remember that hundreds of feet below the road you are on, the miners are hacking at the coal. Yet, in a sense, it is the miners who are driving your car forward. Their lamp-lit world down there is as necessary to the daylight world above as the root is to the flower. It is not long since conditions in the mines were worse than they are now. There are still living a very few old women who in their youth have worked underground with the harness round their waists and a chain that passed between their legs, crawling on all fours and dragging tubs of coal. They used to go on doing this even when they were pregnant, and even now, if coal could not be produced without pregnant women dragging it to, the, to and fro, I fancy we should let them do it, rather than deprive ourselves of coal. But most of the time, of course, we should prefer to forget that they were doing it. It is so with all types of manual work. It keeps us alive, and we are oblivious of its existence." End quote, George Orwell. Now, if we stop to think what our equivalent of coal is today, smartphones, the internet, fast food, many other things, and we imagine a long passage like this being written for each one of them, we might become so revolted that we want to go off the grid altogether. But hardly any of us really can, or even should, achieve this huge escape, though. Nearly everyone who reads this book will more likely just be looking for small ways to lessen the world's unnecessary demands upon them and others so that more fruitful demands can breathe and come to life. Consider these two stories from ancient China. These are both from the collection Changzu. It says, the first story says this, once on a journey, Zhu Qi saw a huge tree with strange knots. 
big enough to shelter a thousand chariots in its shade. Tzu Chi said, What kind of tree is this? It must have unusual potential. Looking up at its branches, he saw that they were too crooked to be used as beams. Looking down at its roots, he saw it was not solid enough to be used as coffins. When he tasted the leaves, his mouth became inflamed, and these leaves had the smell, a smell that would madden a person for days. Tzu Chi said, this is in fact a useless tree. That's how it got to be this big. Yes, this is why the sages cannot be exploited. And the second story is about a tree of the opposite kind. There is a place in the state of Sung where the conditions are right for several varieties of trees known for their straight trunks. Those of a certain size are cut by people looking to make stakes to tie monkeys. Larger ones are cut by people looking for imposing house frames. And yet larger ones are cut by people looking for material to make coffins for nobles and rich merchants. Therefore, those trees never fulfill their natural age, but instead succumb to the axe along the way. This is the trouble with usefulness. Now, if the preceding talk about work has to say anything, it is that few of us can achieve the level of uselessness being suggested here. That is why it seems that only the sages are able to uh, reach that point. This level of no longer being exploited or of no longer participating in the exploitation of others. But the point of stories like these, I think, is to illustrate the extreme so that we, mere mortals, might make a few steps, maybe even just one, towards it. The following statement from the 8th century Buddhist sage Shantideva, then, is less about keeping it strictly than living with it as a perpetual reminder. And he says, one should be addicted solely to the task that one is undertaking. One should be intoxicated by that task, insatiable. And as Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas, quite simply, do not give your heart to that which does not satisfy your heart. But of course, with all the talk of work that I've mentioned here, this is also easier said than done. How is anyone in the world that we've created, anyone with bills, loans, debts, mortgages, a phone buzzing constantly, and a job they despise, how are they honestly supposed to keep their hearts away from that which doesn't satisfy them? This entire book exists in part to show just how damaging it is to believe that we can ever escape all the things that bother us, all the things that are unsatisfactory or unjust. But we can, we can carve out other spaces incrementally. Just look at what the Buddha says here about concentration and about awareness, and about how it is less about escaping from the world than it is about turning small, everyday moments into ones of meditation. And the Buddha says this, again, monks, a monk is one who acts with clear comprehension when going forward and returning, who acts with clear comprehension when looking ahead and looking away, who acts with clear comprehension when bending and stretching his limbs, who acts with clear comprehension 
when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts with clear comprehension when eating, drinking, chewing, and tasting, who acts with clear comprehension when defecating and urinating, who acts with clear comprehension when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. And that is just one paragraph from the wonderful uh, uh, Pali, I believe it is, the, the earliest discourses of the Buddha, which are tremendously repetitive, and they go on and on like this, And uh, but the point is driven home by going on and on like that. It's quite beautiful stuff. But what does this say to us? What does this say in uh, May of 2022? It says that the very stuff of our lives is all we need. If you're religious out there, it means that waking, talking, and keeping silent, walking around and standing up, those are religious acts. You don't have to be religious to believe that. You can just say that those things are important, mindful things to be aware of. So that the above remarks from Judaism, Taoism, Christianity, and Buddhism, as well as George Orwell, and others like them that could easily be added here, these things are not, they are not, lost in the haze of some heady intellectualism or of merely retreating from the world. They are grounded in the very minutes of each of our days, and they are asking with great care how it is that we live each moment of our lives, how we dress, how we walk, how we breathe, how we speak, how we sit down, how we look to see what it was that made that noise across the street. Now, outside of all the economic and social pressures that we cannot control, there must then be, there must be moments and opportunities, however brief, that we can control and that we look forward to and that we create for ourselves, that we create for our minds and for our bodies. There must be moments where we can understand that we are not deficient, that we do not need what is being sold to us every hour of the day the comprehension of our muscles and our minds is greater than any marketed creation. Part of the morning prayer service in Judaism simply offers thanks for daily miracles, miracles like having woken again from sleep, being able to move and use our senses or for our clothing, or for being made in the image of God, whatever you believe that to mean. And how different that kind of focus is from a diet program that says, by next year, you can have the body you've always wanted. A nurse who spent years caring for patients in the last 12 weeks of their lives wrote a book about the regrets of the dying. And these were the top five. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wished, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends, and I wish that I had let myself be happier. Again, the caveat comes that the world as it is, the world that we have made, the world that we are living in, makes achieving any of these five things immensely difficult. But as the Tao Te Ching says, the Tao Te Ching says, 
A giant tree grows from the tiniest shoot. A great tower rises from a basket of dirt. A thousand-mile journey begins at your feet. In other words, we all need to find a way to accomplish these things, and we can't wait until we are dying to do it. The poet Allen Ginsberg liked to wear a t-shirt that summed it up, and the t-shirt said this, well, I'm here, I'll do the work. And what's the work? To ease the pain of living. Everything else? Drunken dumb show. I once heard an adult education class on ancient Egypt. Now, to organize nearly 4,000 years of Egyptian history, scholars have separated it into about 30 dynasties, and those dynasties are distributed into a handful of larger chronological units. Two of these units, the first and the second intermediate periods, are generally considered ones of political and cultural upheaval, and as a result, they are much less well-known, much less is known about them than about the other periods of Egyptian history. And the Egyptologist teaching the adult education class told me of a student who was actually offended at this gap in knowledge. He hadn't expected it, as if it wasn't worth knowing about the little that we do know about these periods in time, if we couldn't somehow know all of it, as if that was possible anyhow. For some reason, this student had come to expect completeness and perfection from a topic as difficult as history. He had no way of seeing the marvelous thing that generations of Egyptologists had done. Since the 1820s, when hieroglyphs were first deciphered, a comprehensible map of Egyptian history had been created one that could easily respond to the appearance of new information. My favorite instance of this is, you will see now for the earliest evidence of dynastic Egypt, uh, sometimes you will see a dynasty zero listed, which is wonderful to me, that you have dynasty one settled for a long time and suddenly you find something even earlier than you imagined was the earliest thing there. Now, when used as a part of a process and not seen as an end in itself, this kind of categorization is categorization at its very best. Admissions of imperfection like this should be celebrated. And indeed, I was thrilled when I came across these words in a book about Renaissance philosophy by the late Francis Yates. It is less a disclaimer than a proclamation of how the acquisition of knowledge actually works. And this is what she said. The present book, which makes a rash attempt at exploring these problems, will not be a perfect structure. It will be a temporary, even a makeshift edifice, which later architects with better equipment will no doubt revise and alter. Nevertheless, even a temporary structure is better than no structure at all. It is only a first attempt at tackling a problem 
which will take years of further work and thought to solve. And this is even more striking to me because uh, Francis Yates, as far as I can tell, was someone who lived in the academy. She was a teacher and a writer, and a writer on fairly arcane subjects, fairly arcane to most of us out there, such as Renaissance philosophy, as I mentioned, Rosicrucianism, a lot of stuff that nowadays gathers around it, uh, conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. And it strikes me that someone like Francis Yates would devote years of their life, and if you read the book in question, or any of her books actually, you can see how much care and how much thought and how much research and how much study and, and because of all that, how much real love has gone into these books. And it's incredible to me that someone would devote that much study and love and research to something that they know will be incomplete. She had to have known, Frances Yates did, uh, almost before she even began this book in question about Renaissance philosophy, that she either didn't know everything about it, that nobody knew everything about it, that all of the sources for a proper study um, were not available, had not been found yet, and all the rest of it. And yet she continued with her book. And that is just a wonderful example to me about how to deal with something like knowledge. But once again, as I've mentioned earlier in other episodes, uh, sports is also a good way to look at this problem, this problem of imperfection. For a medium so surrounded by statistics and numbers as sports is, it's stunning to see how imperfect so much of sports actually in reality is. Just think about baseball. Players who compete for the highest batting average are being judged not on how well they do under identical conditions and against identical opponents, but rather against different pitchers, different pitches, on different days and at different times, the best baseball players emerge, the, the title or the category of best baseball players, emerges not from something like the environment of a repeatable laboratory experiment, but through a process that is much closer to everyday life, where everyone is given the same basic structure to compete under, nine innings, uh, three outs, three strikes, four balls, all the rest of it, all while this structure allows for vast and dissimilar experiences of choice and chance. But this, this concept, which resembles everyday life, is much more difficult, of course, when actually lived with in everyday life. That is, when we recognize that success in the world is also the result of chance as much as choice. While all of us are given 24 hours in a day to spend our time, how well we do in life and how well our choices succeed are largely the result of factors outside of our hands. And even if we don't agree that it is largely, even if we only agree that it is a quarter or a third outside of our hands, that is still an awfully high margin. And if we admit that people with better upbringing, 
better uh, resources, more money, more people that they know, all of those things, um, have that percentage lessened and lessened, um, that also is not something to scoff at. This apprehension that certain people clearly have more money, more influence, and more chances simply because of when they were born and whose children they are can be seen at the bottom of so many problems from media bias. I've seen many stories lately about how uh, uh, the quote-unquote left-wing or at least mainstream media has basically been peopled by a bunch of young journalists who all went to the same prep schools and all went then went to the same Ivy League or other institutions and then all got into the same magazines or all got into the same uh, uh, cable news channels as everybody else so that they are quite literally uh, have no awareness of the world outside of their own very you might say, not refined, because it's not refined, um, just enclosed bubble. Um, so from media bias, or why some people cling to conspiracy theories, and so on, because of course conspiracy theories work, because there is always some sort of grain of truth to what is being claimed more wildly at the very end. There is an inherent imperfection, as I've been saying, there is an inherent imperfection, and when this comes down to basic livability, an inherent injustice in everyday life that many of us would like to either solve completely or to completely deny, when actually neither extreme seems to me to be an honest reaction to the situation. The drawbacks to denying that there is an inherent injustice to everyday life seems self-evident to me, but I also don't see any way to guarantee equality of opportunity or equality of outcome to anyone, and it seems just as self-evidently destructive to pretend that we can ever create a, quote, level playing field. For example, it was claimed a few years ago that parents who read to their children are putting them at an unfair advantage over those children who aren't being read to as much. And it seems to me that we have indeed arrived at a terrible place when the problem of not enough children being read to actually prompts the solution that, to make things more fair, perhaps no children should be read to. There has to be another way of dealing with this. Similarly, there is the idea that just because women or minorities weren't given the same opportunities in the arts in 17th century Italy, those artists who made the Italian Renaissance what it was should be ignored and should not be studied anymore because it was apparently such an awful time to live in. This illustration can be expanded to nearly every creative or political or religious situation we can imagine, and the easiest way out for some has just been to stop studying Western history altogether or some subset of that that uh, is deemed to be so so corrupt and so biased and so horrible to certain individuals or groups that th it is not worth knowing what they ever did or thought or said. But I can't think of a more destructive way to deal with history than this, 
or the problems of the present moment. As George Orwell put it, we are living in a nightmare precisely because, precisely because we have tried to set up an earthly paradise. But we truly are so in need, we really are in need of strong examples of wisdom, decency, and beauty, even of eloquence. It's hard not to understand why cable news pundits or talk radio hosts or whoever it is get such a following. We want to follow or we want to find examples of people who know what they think and can express those ideas well. I just don't think TV is the, the way the place to look for that. And because of that, we need to take them. We, can, we need to take these examples of wisdom, decency, and beauty where we can find them. We must pick and choose. And sometimes we have to pluck them out of the mud. The perfect moment, the perfect person, the perfect idea, or the perfect country. None of these things have arrived yet. And just because the wisdom and decency we are able to call upon are sometimes found in the uncomfortable, unsolvable middle, doesn't mean that we should jettison them entirely. We need to go to the place where signs and slogans and passing fads are too simplistic to reach. We need to regain and accept our own complexity. But this is also why the bloated bureaucracies that usually accompany our attempts to right certain wrongs are less a reason to get rid of them as they are just another illustration as to how imperfect and actually impossible most real and lasting problems are. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to correct various injustices only that we should never imagine we will succeed. We can only hope to fail better, and we should realize that the private moments, the real moments of success, aren't legislative, but private. Getting back to privacy again. As usual, it is everyday life, not political or public life, that truly needs change or growth, and it is everyday life not political or public life, that most of us have any power over at all if we have power over anything. The journalist Robert Kolker, in his book Lost Girls, about the murders of sex workers on Long Island, tries to put into words how unsolvable many of the problems that these young women faced were. Putting the victims into broad categories that can just be moved from one column to another on a spreadsheet does not work, in part because the decision of a woman to become a sex worker has more than one cause behind it, most of them interpersonal and private. And this is what Robert Kolker says in his book Lost Girls, which if anyone is looking for uh, a, a hard book to read about a hard subject, that would be one I would recommend it to anyone who thinks that they could stomach it. Uh, Robert Kolker says this, the mistake may be thinking that everyone works as an escort for the same reasons. Not all of them are minors, and not all of them have been trafficked. Shannon, Maureen, Megan, Melissa, and Amber were over 21. They were more or less alone and of their own volition. They 
were more or less working alone and of their own volition. Despite what some family members said after the fact, they were not lured or overtly pressured. Some would say that this makes them complicit in their fate. In other words, they brought this on themselves by doing something so dangerous. But to suggest that they had it coming because they put themselves in a risky situation is disingenuous. No one walks through life thinking they're going to be killed. But to blame the girls alone would be just as easy as blaming Craigslist or Backpage alone. To place responsibility on any family members, a mother like Mary or a sister like Kim, means at least partially acquitting the girls themselves. To suggest that someone should have stopped them is to believe that they could have been stopped. But, and that's end quote, by the way, but that can seem like an easy way out too. And I have to ask how powerless many of us are. How powerless but free. Consider how little understanding we have, all of us have, of so many of the things that we depend upon, from smartphones to food production to transportation. Our lives are largely at the mercy of those who provide us with everything from actual shelter and nourishment down to the merest conveniences few of us can imagine living without. And more, nearly all of the political, technological, scientific, and religious issues that engulf the world today are in the end so specialized that our opinions of them are mostly based on little more than summaries by those specialists, and our adherence to one view or another is rarely objective, it's rarely our own, it's based on somebody else's expertise. This sense of powerlessness seems undeniable to me. However, I'm not sure about a similar issue, which is our freedom. As it's been said, human beings are condemned to freedom. That is, we are condemned to unavoidable personal responsibility. Even in the face of vast social injustice, this way of thinking goes, even in the face of huge corporate and political power, even in the face of the enormous cultural and technological influences that bombard us from our devices, smartphones, TVs, computers, the internet, and their products, movies, music, books, news, videos, data, even in the face of all of these things, we are, so the saying goes, in fact, free to do what we want in response to all of them, even if the discipline required to do so is immensely difficult to achieve. Or is this actually not true? How free are many of us if we are not even aware that we can react against or with the religion that we were raised with, or against or with the political or cultural norms we live amidst? After the kind of upbringing many of them had, indeed, how free were the sex workers mentioned above to find other options. Sometimes I feel that most of the world actually resembles a little boy I saw recently sitting across from his mother at a restaurant. For the entire meal, she had her face in her phone, ignoring her child, and when her son tried to interact with her, she yelled at him and said, I am going to tell Daddy what a bad boy you've been. 
Just think of the larger social or political versions of this situation, where nearly every one of us is put in the place of this little boy, and, through no power of our own, certain horrible habits and realities are thrust upon us, and become ingrained in all that we do. Because technically, yes, this little boy will eventually have the freedom, quote-unquote, to choose how he deals with technology and how he interacts with other people. But when his day is filled with insidious situations like this one, how free will he ever be to actually notice another way of acting, let alone to be able to choose it for himself? The mistake seems to be in imagining that we are born free, when in reality, None of us are born free any more than we are born with the memories of the future already in our heads. What constitutes our memories have to be lived first, and what constitutes our freedom needs to be earned and nurtured and only slowly discovered and held on to. Our ability to be free seems to be dependent upon our ability to be Curious, that's a word I haven't used as much as I should have in these essays, curious. Our ability to be free seems to be dependent upon our ability to just be curious. And so we are only as free as our awareness, as the awareness that we've cultivated, allows us to be. The German occupation of Paris during World War II elicited this realization, or one like it, among many who lived through it. After the liberation of Paris, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said this, Never have we been freer than under the German occupation. We had lost all our rights, starting with that of speaking. We were insulted daily and had to remain silent. We were deported en masse as workers, as Jews, as political prisoners, everywhere, on walls, and newspapers, on screens. We were confronted by this vile image that our oppressors wanted to give us of ourselves. And because of that, we were free. And just rewind the podcast 15 seconds or so and just listen to that quote again and again and try to puzzle that out. Uh, Sartre's uh, uh, contemporary, Jean Gehenno, who I quoted last week, had this to say in his diary. The, author, the authors of the Declaration of the Rights of Man wrote that men are born and remain free in equal rights. But they didn't fool themselves. They proclaimed this against destiny, against nature, against all tyrannies. They knew what we were inevitably up against. They knew what we were inevitably up against. They knew nature doesn't care a whit about that justice, which is only inside us. But if at every moment nature undoes what we do, liberty, equality, fraternity, that is all the more reason to redo it through our will, through our laws, and to set up human order against natural disorder, and be ready to pay the price for these pretensions. The precondition for the great life they dreamed of for themselves and all humanity was really, and this is not so easy, to keep themselves ready for life, but also to keep themselves ready for death.
And so, and so this kind of freedom is rare and fragile, and it is never a given, and it needs to be helped along. This kind of freedom needs to be influenced, it needs to be apprehended, and it needs to be grasped. And this helping, this influencing, at least at first, seems to happen spontaneously, by chance, and is rarely the result of some formal decision to change someone's life. When I hear of people thanking special teachers or friends who appeared in their lives at some crucial moment, I no longer scoff as I once might have, since in many instances it's this kind of chance influence, suddenly exploding into one's awareness, where things truly begin, where freedom and choice are first seen for what they are. A teenage girl once told the clinical psychologist Mary Pfeiffer, Sometimes I feel myself thinking thoughts I'm sure no one in my family ever had. There are so many things I haven't tried, drama, music, things my family isn't interested in. Would I like those things? That realization alone and those questions are the start of everything. And well, and I don't mean that in, a, in just, a, uh, just a rebellious way, I'm not saying that people need to jump off and find things their family isn't interested in, but being able to question what they have been raised in seems to be something essential to the growth of anybody. And that realization and those questions are the start of everything. While something like a school lunch program fulfills an immense and undeniable need, its mental and spiritual equivalents are beyond any kind of program or piece of legislation, privacy again. This is all the more reason, then, to expose ourselves to others, to risk entering into what might feel like alien situations, since it is there that we might meet someone we can help or who can help us. My question a few episodes ago of how best to teach seems to have found its answer here. So if it's true what Gandhi said, that, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, then there are two things to understand. The first is that injustice seems so ubiquitous and inevitable because it makes itself known in huge acts of violence and tragedy. The second is that justice, or what could also be called decency, beauty, rightness, and compassion, only rarely makes itself known in huge acts, and more often than not, it is only apprehended in the slow accumulation of small, unhistorical acts, if you remember the George Eliot phrase from many episodes ago. And so the stage for these small acts is invariably the one called capital E everyday, capital L life, everyday life. The place far from advertising, the place far from shame, the place far from the love of mere achievement and mere riches and mere influence and merely being seen. The poet T.S. Eliot wrote, quite simply, that love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. 
Old men ought to be explorers. Here or there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. Through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise, in my end is my beginning. For me, the end that Eliot is speaking of is the end of our compulsive interaction with so many of the ugly things we are told to care about, while the beginning is a different kind of life, a different kind of awareness that an embrace of the everyday can bring. There is a sense of make-believe about much of life, as if it were a play. I buy books that I won't read for years, or I keep up the appearance of my house for the sake of a future I am not guaranteed, not just a year or five years, but just a day. And so much more of what we do, or become attached to, it all involves a future that we are not guaranteed, and yet we play along. There's always this tension between living in the moment and preparing for the future, but preparing for the future almost always wins out, so that our present is bogged down with duties, assumptions, and apparent obligations that we don't question even though if we did question them, we might put a handful of them aside and find ourselves happier. It is a lovable trait. It's a lovable thing that we do this. It is a very human thing to do. And perhaps planning for the future beats out living in the present because we can pretend to have control over something that hasn't arrived while our control over the present is very obviously, and it's shown over and over again, is very limited at best. We are all playing a part, it seems. We are all acting in a drama, or more likely we are all players in a comedy. We are playing a game. I used to say that when I worked in retail in New York City, and was confronted with men and women of all ages, all done up almost too impressively, that I was reminded of dress-up day at kindergarten. And I used to say that when I handed these people their bound reports or their signs or just their copies, it reminded me of coloring class. It was bizarre, it's still bizarre to me, that the business world could apparently not get going without this pretend seriousness of reports and signs, these horridly grave images of what it meant to be a, quote, professional, especially if you saw, as I did every day, that on some level the image wasn't working. And so these people had to be hard and disagreeable to everybody, hard and disagreeable or just slightly clueless. I remember a kid, um, 
who had to have been uh, a day out of uh, college, and he got his job in Midtown Manhattan, and he came into the place where I was working, and he wanted a piece of paper enlarged to about two by three feet or 24 by 36. And he said that he wanted the words eligible. He wanted to make sure the words would still be eligible when they were enlarged to that size. And it took me a minute to realize that he meant legible. And this is just the kind of thing that you saw. It's the kind of thing that now, though, I don't look down on and I just try to understand it because I used to say these things. I used to say it reminded me of kindergarten. It reminded me of coloring class and I didn't understand what these professional people were doing. And even in the most economic city in the world, why do they have to do this? And I wonder what COVID has done to that professional life, uh, not just in a place like Pittsburgh, but in a place like Midtown Manhattan as well, with people uh, working remotely and such. I used to say all these things, but I can't say them anymore without also mentioning that artists and writers and, quote, intellectuals also have their own dress codes, their own poses, and their own cliches of moodiness and irritability. Because I'm pretty sure that when I started wearing a trench coat as a teenager, it had very little to do with keeping me warm during another Ohio winter. If I tell this story anymore, it is simply to say that we all do some version of it. We are acting in a play. And the literary version of this that comes to mind right away, I've been meaning to track it down for some time. I saw it online many years ago. Um, and it was the story of William Carlos Williams, Dr. Williams, to his patients because he was a doctor all his life, uh, who who I believe spent some time in, in literary Paris and could take the train into New York City on the weekends, but largely stayed out of the 24-7 um, bohemian or just literary scene. And there's a story about William Carlos Williams, this uh, astounding American poet, whatever you make of him, uh, this, just the story of his career and how he got going is pretty incredible and how he stayed the course and then became friends with a young Allen Ginsberg. But this story is about how he was being invited to give a talk or maybe even it was, maybe even it, maybe it even was a debate with a critic or an academic. I can't remember what it was. But the story says that he tried to brush up on his, on his learning about the history of poetry in the English language before he went. And it's kind of a sad thing, not just that William Carlos Williams, who I believe he was born in the 1880s, and this maybe happened in the 1930s or 40s, that by then he still felt the need, he still felt some lack that he wanted to replace somehow. Um, and he felt the need to cram for it. Um, he didn't feel that his own, uh, his own standing in poetry or his own achievements in poetry were enough. That's always struck me 
as a very sad situation. Not only that he went along with it, or, or not only that it existed, but that he felt that he needed to go along with it, that he was still so self-conscious. Now, it's been pointed out to me how selective sects like the Mennonites or the Amish are in shunning technology. After all, the machinery and the tools they do allow themselves were once as new as the wheel. How did they draw the line, I was once asked, at 1850, or whatever it was? Buggies and trains were the hip thing once. What is, where did, how does this play uh, that I'm talking about, that we are all acting in? How does it relate to, for instance, what the Mennonites or the Amish do? It seems that they only knew that a line however arbitrary, needed to be drawn. Some limitation needed to be produced so that they could have discipline and order, and in the case of the Mennonites and the Amish, also of community. And so they saw that a line needed to be drawn, and they drew it. Completely arbitrary, but they drew it, and it worked. And uh, they have what they need. We are all selective in this way, though. Many of us draw different lines in different ways, and we pretend that our lines, political lines, dietary lines, cultural and religious lines, we pretend that they are somehow eternal and not a matter of choice, when they are actually entirely preferential, yet no less meaningful, despite that. Even the choice which is made to follow in the footsteps of a hallowed tradition whether a family tradition that's only a few generations old, or a religious tradition, I think of Hinduism or Judaism, that is, that are both thousands of years old, that is still a choice. And this is the essence of what I mean. So many of us become so attached to whatever our preferred way of life is, especially to those parts that we believe we were meant to live, or were, quote, called to live, that we don't see that other meanings and other callings are possible and necessary. These ways of life that we value so much are a play and a game, yet they are also our lifeblood. They are both, you see. They really are actually both. And I think this is almost the key to the whole book, to uh, Notes from the Grid. They are a play, they are a game, but they are also our lifeblood. In another incarnation, we could cling to a different way of life and live just as meaningfully. The meaning and the strength are not in the specifics, but in the discipline and hopefully the empathy derived from living with any form of imposed order or care, no matter what it is. Yet, we are so strange, inevitably clinging to the point of conflict, only to the specifics, always to our country or religion or ideology or form of art, we make life so unnecessarily difficult. We are singing in our opera. I think of that line in Paul Thomas Anderson's movie Magnolia, where the elderly character who is on his deathbed is hacking out his last words, and one of the things he says to his caretaker is, um, life isn't short, it's long. Life is not short, it's long. And 
And that's sort of what I've been realizing in the writing of all of these essays over the past 16 years. I realized that as I'm feeding my cats, I also realize that there are both homeless people and there are starving children in the world. And yet so many of us have pets or that there are wars and famines and totalitarian governments, and yet the people use millions of dollars to do things other than address famine or dictatorships. Or that, with diseases in need of cures, there are scientists involved in apparently less urgent matters than pursuing those cures. Or that, with every trouble in the world, music is made, books are written, photographs are taken, or a group of friends goes out for lunch and has a nice time. The poet Robinson Jeffers writes of, quote, divinely superfluous beauty, end quote. And our opera is something like that. Once we find and isolate them, and once we remove the shells of commerce and opinion and judgment that surround them, the things we actually value most of all are, from any practical perspective of simple survival, they are entirely superfluous. They don't warm our bodies, they don't satisfy our stomachs, they don't fill our bank accounts. They are useful for being useless. In the terms of uh, one of the other episodes, they are useful for being unable to uh, be twisted in a way that can make money or make us friends or something like that. These are our loves, if we are lucky enough to have them. And these are our secret joys, if we are lucky enough to have those. And these are the things we don't get paid for. And these are the things that no one, except perhaps those closest to us, will ever know about. Boiling it all down, it sounds like this. These are the moments that we live for, and they are rare. The rest is a game, but we have to play it. And that's the basic knot. There are moments that we live for, and they are rare. The rest is a game, but we have to play it. And there does not seem to be a way out of this knot, the knot in which all of these things are bound together and dependent on one another, unless you escape the world entirely, go off the grid or become a monk or decide that you don't want to be around people anymore. Uh, there's no way of getting away from one or the other. And it's incredible to find that in the Epic of Gilgamesh and in the Buddha's discourses, someone says something like, we all live our lives and laugh as if it will last forever, as if death isn't possible at every moment. And in the Christian Desert Fathers, one disgruntled monk says, We have to render an account of our whole life before heaven and earth, and you can laugh. But we do laugh. And in many ways, there's nothing better than comedy. Uh, I think we know that even more after the years 2020 and 2021. Um, how many people on YouTube that uh, my wife and I have gone to simply to laugh amid everything that has been going on since 2020, or we might say even before then. We do laugh, 
And in many ways, there's nothing better than comedy. We do live our lives. We do enjoy ourselves. We do accumulate meaningful things, superfluous or impractical though they are, because they are somehow divinely beautiful, both passing and eternal, both here and gone and here forever, both utterly random and arbitrary, and yet also firm and life-sustaining. Since converting to Judaism, one of the personal prayers that I try to say every day includes this line. It says, thank you for time. Thank you for the awareness and the experience of time. Thank you for the awareness and the experience of those things that are short-lived and those that are long-lasting and the meaning you give to them both. So that I can no longer say, I can no longer say, as I may have once done, that we could do with pruning some of the short-lived things in the world in order to see the divinely beautiful things more clearly. I can no longer agree completely with Robinson Jeffers when he says quite beautifully that permanent things are what is needful in a poem things temporally of great dimension, things continually renewed are always present. Grass that is made each year equals the mountains in her past and future. Fashionable and momentary things we need not see nor speak of. I can't say that anymore. I could, I could say all of it except that last line. Fashionable and momentary things we need not speak of. Because I would say instead that, where possible, the fashionable and the momentary things need to be elevated, not ignored, since if we can't find meaning in the mundane and everyday details of life and commerce, we've only jumped back onto the poisonous wheel whose goal is escaping, quote, regular life for something more rarefied and pure, a mindset that inevitably sows division. The essence of life, the essence of love, seems to be the habit and surprise that we can find in the mundane, those moments that Emily Dickinson wrote of, which distill amazing sense from ordinary meanings. The young man I spoke about at the beginning of these episodes on Notes from the Grid, the young man who just wanted to stuff his life with huge and obvious expressions of creativity, he would have cheered a remark from the poet W.B. Yeats, who said that, quote, the tale of Troy is quite near to me, probably much nearer than anything I read in this morning's paper. But Yeats's life shows just how much of an exaggeration this was, since he never stopped throwing himself in, into the political and social upheavals of his day. And few poets combine such an involvement with everyday life, also with mythology, folklore, and autobiography. I have come, in the end, to be much more sympathetic with Stephen King's remark in 2003, responding to those writers who were proud not to have read authors on the bestseller lists. And Stephen King says, Do you get social or academic brownie points for deliberately staying out of touch with your own culture? It may seem strange for me 
to have waited until the last minute, the last uh, section of this uh, of these episodes of these podcasts, to say that I don't think pop culture is the enemy, but I really don't. It's just that it's presented to us as if it is the only thing, as if it is everything, but it isn't. Each one of us has a private culture of our own, something only we, or maybe only a few dozen people like. We simply have to admit that something is more important, that anything is more important, that anything is important, whether a million people enjoy it or only a few thousand do, or just one, and that pride in huge numbers or knee-jerk snobbery in small numbers accomplish nothing. The novelist Philip Roth said something along these lines a few years before he died in an interview. Here's what he said. Uh, last night uh, I was in New York. I went to see the third in a series of uh, Shostakovich Quartet recitals that's being given by the Emerson Quartet. And th these quartets of Shostakovich are unlike anything else in, in the 20th century. And a third of the hall was empty. This is Alice Tully Hall in uh, Lincoln Center. Now, that's okay with me, and it's probably okay with the Emerson Quartet, and it's okay with Shostakovich. But the people who were sitting there were not stuffy or elite. They were people who uh, find great pleasure and sustenance in listening to Shostakovich. Now, the young man that I wrote about at the beginning of this book that I spoke about in the first of these episodes on Notes from the Grid he seemed to believe that art and religion were the point of life, whereas now it seems beyond obvious that I am alive, and only secondarily do I need to make a poem or an essay out of any of it. Nothing is necessary, nothing is required, except the pursuit, however it is, however we do it, except for the pursuit and the search and the finding of meaning, of joy, of bittersweetness, of perpetual learning. It is strange, on the one hand, that life exists at all, and it is stranger still that it exists in this way, in any way, in all its ways. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.